Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. <clears throat> I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. Today I want to look at a question I received uh, many years ago, and actually this question was recently published uh, in uh, Mystery Writers of America's The Third Degree. Actually it was published there in December of 2022. And as always, this will be on my blog, so uh, there'll be links to that, and you can go there and read the question and my answer in details. But this one fascinated me, and it's very cool. So here is the question. I am writing a time travel where one of the characters is a modern doctor who is sent back in time to the 15th century with his family. I want him to do something medical to save the life of the herald. I was thinking the heroine needs a blood transfusion, which would require a blood typing system. Any idea how it could be accomplished? I was also thinking that the heroine has a rare blood type. Would that be type B? Well, uh, type B is not the most common. O is, but um, the, the rarest is uh, AB negative. But let's get to that later. I find this this uh, question fascinating. I find this whole scenario fascinating. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the Outlander series, which of course is fabulously pos uh, uh, popular. Um, but let's look at what's going on here. What are we looking at? 15th century. Okay, that's 1400s. That's the 1400s in Europe. That's sandwiched between the Black Death and the Renaissance. So it's kind of in that dark age, uh, kind of no man's land uh, in European history. So medicine wasn't a very artful state at that time. Not to mention that there was uh, the problems between science and the church. Uh, it seems to be ongoing century after century. But that's kind of a double-edged sword. You, you have to remember in medieval Europe, the churches actually uh, did a lot of health care and a lot of taking care of the injured and the, and the ill and the downtrodden, and they did a lot of that stuff, and that's very positive. But they also looked askance at science. You know, they, they, they wouldn't allow autopsies. Uh, they didn't want to hear anything that wasn't godly, uh, that, you know, science, no, 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 that, that can't be it. Uh, of course, the germ theory wasn't around. We knew nothing about what causes diseases. Um, just bad things happen to bad people, and it was usually couched in some religious robe, no pun intended, to um, um, explain it. And remember, most of what we think about and do as humans is we try to explain the world around us. So let's look... Uh, You've got this modern-day physician with modern-day knowledge going back to a very, very, very rudimentary and, and, and time where there was no medicine, there was no really anything, no anesthesia, no real surgeries, no, no real anything, no understanding of how diseases work, any of that stuff. So it puts him like the stranger in a strange land situation, and again, he has to tiptoe through the whole church situation, and this could be a great part of the story. But let's stick with the science of it. Now, transfusions are, are things that are very actually modern, 100 years old, really, as far as them being safe and simple, and maybe even less than that because we're finding stuff all the time. 
But uh, the first human trans transfusion took place in France in 1667 by Jean-Baptiste Denis. Uh, and he actually transfused sheep's blood into a 15-year-old boy. Uh, th this, this was done where they would take animal blood because they figured blood was blood. Well, it's not, as we will see, it, it's not just a red liquid that you can slosh around from person to person. Uh, but that, that was the first recorded attempt at using animal blood to replace blood loss in a young boy. The first human-to-human -human transfusion, and remember, most early transfusions were person-to-person. -person. You'd stick something in one artery and, and or one vein and go to, the, to another and, and try, to, try to make gravity take it over there. We, we didn't have blood banks, and you couldn't store the blood and do all the stuff that we do now, obviously. And the first one of those recorded was in 1818, and that was done by a James Blundell. And it was on a young woman who had suffered postpartum bleeding. After birth, she had bled profusely. and uh, But even at that time, there was no way to match the blood. So it was a crapshoot. It was, um, they didn't understand how this worked. They didn't understand uh, that transfusions could be bad. They could kill you. And, and a blood transfusion gone wrong is, is, a, is a medical crisis. A, a bad things happen. We'll explain all of that. So the, the understanding of our blood system goes back to 1901 and a guy named Carl Landsteiner. Now, he is the guy that discovered and developed the ABO system for blood typing. Okay, and then later in 1939, the RH factor came along when Landsteiner also discovered there was a, another antigen called the D antigen, and he called it the RH factor or rhesus factor because he had discovered in rhesus monkeys. But the ABO system, you know, you have type A blood, type B blood, type AB blood, or you have type O blood. So that's called the ABO system. Well, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but you have antigens, which are proteins, on your blood cells, your red blood cells. And the type of antigen that you have there depends upon the type that your blood is. And in fact, in the typing process, that's what they're typing for, is what kind of antigens are on your, on your red blood cells. In the bloodstream, the serum around those red blood cells, you have antibodies against the other type. So that if the other type comes in, is given to you, these antibodies attack it and they cause what we call an agglutination reaction. We'll talk about in a second. So if you have type A blood, you have anti-B antibodies in the serum. If you have type B blood, you have anti-A antibodies in the system. If you have AB blood, you don't have either antibody system in your serum. And if you have type O blood, you have both anti-A and anti-B. Now, on my blog, I'll attach uh, stuff from, from How Done It Forensics, which will explain this in greater detail. But suffice it to say that the antigen on the red blood cells, the A or the B, 
or the AB or the nun determine the blood type. The antibodies, which are the exact opposite of that, determine transfusion reactions. What happens? So let's say you got a person that is type A and you give them type B blood. Well, these B blood red blood cells have B antigens and when they enter the bloodstream of a type A person, the anti-B antibodies in the serum attack it. It's similar to when you get a cold or a flu or something and a virus enters your bloodstream. The first line of defense inside the bloodstream is the body starts attacking it with antibodies. It starts creating and building antibodies against that virus. This takes a while, at least a few days and sometimes up to several weeks. But then you develop these antibodies and they attack the virus and then they damage the virus and they clump the virus together with a bunch of these antibodies and so the white blood cells can come in and gobble them up. And so that's how the, your immune system works because the virus is the antigen and the antibody is against the, 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 anti, the antigen. The antibody attacks an antigen. The virus is the antigen. The body builds antibodies to attack it. So if you have type A antigen blood and, and, you, and you put in B blood, the serum around the type A has B antibodies, and so they attack the B antigen red blood cells. And what does it make to happen? It makes them what we call agglutinate. And that means they attach to one another. So you will have uh, an antigen come in, and actually it's bipolar. It's, uh, it's bipolar. It has the receptors on each end. So it will grab one uh, red blood cell, and then it'll grab another, and then it'll grab another antigen, it'll grab another antibody, and it'll grab another antibody. And pretty soon you develop this lattice work of the B antigens and the anti-B antibodies, and they clump together. And these clumps are now in the bloodstream, and what do they do? Well, they start damaging everything, particularly the kidneys, because the kidneys like to try to filter stuff out of the bloodstream, obviously, and it starts plugging up the kidney and killing off the kidney and a lot of other things. You can have fevers and chills and rashes, and uh, you, you can have brain injury and heart injury and kidney destruction and all this stuff from a transfusion reaction. So it's not a, a lightly taken thing. We later on discovered that the ABO and the RH system aren't the only ones. There's a whole bunch of antibodies out there, Kells and Duffies, and they go by all kinds of creative names, usually by the physician that, that discovered them. But the point is, is that now when someone gets a blood transfusion, what do we do? We type and cross-match it. And what that means is we take the patient's blood, and then we take the stored blood that would be the same type. Say B positive, we get B positive because they're same kind of blood. They'll have the same kind of antibodies in the serum part. They will have the same antigens on the blood, on the blood cells. They'll be the same RH factor. That's the positive or negative. Um, and we will then mix them together and see what happens. And we will find the most compatible donor. There may be, you might have to test half a dozen of your 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 stored units of B positive blood to find the one that's most compatible, and then that's the one you'll transfer and transfuse into the patient because it has the least likelihood of having a transfusion reaction.
There's no such thing as zero risk here, but it's low. We do the same thing with transplantation, except now tissue antigens come into play, and, and that's more complex. But in order to find a donor, say, for a heart or a kidney or a lung or something like that, these have to be matched. Well, this is all sophisticated stuff. Okay? So let's get back to the physician. He's back in medieval times in Europe, and he's confronted with this <clears throat> case where the heroine is going to die if she doesn't get a transfusion. How is he going to do this? How on earth is he going to make this happen? Well, he obviously has all the understanding, but he doesn't have the tools. Now, as far as the physical act of transfusing blood, say, from the donor to the recipient, the heroine being the recipient, and finding a donor is pretty simple. He could fashion anything. Uh, you know, obviously, they didn't have needles and, and, and the, the, the vinyl tubing and stuff that we have now, the silicon tubing. What they do, what he could do is easily fashion a needle from one and attach some kind of tube to it to another, even if it's made out of reeds and stuff like that. He could do that and take something from the vein of the donor and, and, and the, put it in the vein of the recipient and have the donor raise their arm up above or stand up above the person, and then gravity would take the blood down into the, into the recipient's vein. So the physical act of transfusing, there's several ways to do that. But what about the biochemistry involved? What is he going to do about that? Well, what he would have to do is take a little blood samples from a bunch of different people and mix them with a little bit of her blood uh, uh, and look at it and see if this agglutination process occurred or not and take the one that it did not occur in and that's the one you would transfuse. Now, rudimentary, fraught with all kinds of problems and everything could have gone wrong, but it's his best bet of getting the most compatible donor for this poor young lady. Well, here's another problem. This agglutination process that I talked about, you can't see it. It's microscopic. So how's he going to know? How's he going to know what's going on down there in places that he can't see? Well, it makes it difficult because now we look for this agglutination with a microscope. Now, the first microscope didn't appear until 1590 when two Dutch spectacle makers, the Zacharias Janssen and his son Hans, developed the first microscope. They found out that if they took the lenses that they worked with and put them in a tube and then looked through it, it magnified what they were looking at. And this was kind of the beginning of the first microscope. It wasn't until three-quarters of a century later, in the 1660s, that Anton de Leeuwenhoek was the first to develop a true microscope. And then this allowed advances in, in anatomy and, 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 and histology and all these things that we do now. It allowed us to look at the body, not just, just in a gross aspect, but in a microscopic aspect, and the the benefits of science and medicine that occurred after that were, were, were earth-shaking, literally. Okay, well, that's too bad, because 1590 and, of course, 1660s 
we're way after when this guy's there by, you know, 150 to 200 years. So what's our physician going to do? Well, maybe he knew all this. And glasses were around, and maybe he fashioned his own thing, just like the Janssen father and son team did, fashioned his own little microscope out of a, a, a tubing of some type, and he could manufacture that from, from bark or wood or whatever, uh, and put the lenses in there. And now maybe he can see, and lo and behold, what does he do? He takes these blood samples. He gets them from a dozen people, and most of them don't play well with each other, and he ends up seeing all these little microscopic clumps appear. But he finds a couple that don't. And so those two could be the donors for this young lady. And he could set it all up. She could transfuse the blood. He could save the day and be the hero. Uh, or get hung or crucified or burned at the stake by the church. Because this would be <laughs> against the church's teachings that you can't give blood from one person to another. Who knows what would happen. But the point is, is that I love this question because it's a very clever question and it does require some gymnastics to make the answer right. So at the end of the day, you have a modern physician back in medieval times who is confronted with a girl who is dying from blood loss and he needs to figure out how to get compatible blood into her. This would require him to create a microscope locate some willing participants to donate blood, test the blood to see which ones were most compatible, and then set up a system to transfuse this most compatible blood to, um, to this victim. Very clever, very clever, very clever. Let me cover one other topic here that's, that's on point and not on point. There's a, there's a situation called type-specific blood transfusion. What does that mean? Well, if someone comes in and they've ruptured their aorta or they've been shot and they're bleeding like crazy and they're circling the drain in the emergency room and they've lost so much blood and you don't have the 15 or 20 minutes or so it takes to, to uh, you know, blood typing takes a minute, but, but type and cross-matching takes some time. And uh, they don't have time for that. So you find out the person has uh, B-positive blood. You go to the shelf, you grab a couple of bottles of, of uh, B-positive blood, and you transfuse it. You haven't tested it. You haven't seen if it's compatible. It's very similar to this physician finds, finds himself, you know, half, half a millennium ago trying to, trying to figure all this out. And, 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 but it's any port in the storm. You got to get some blood on board. You know, putting in salt water is not going to do it. You got to have blood. So that's called type specific blood testing and blood transfusion. So, meanwhile, you're you, the lab's going crazy, you know, trying to find the most compatible thing. But in the interim, you pump in two or three or four units of blood, whatever it takes, and keep your fingers crossed and hope that this transfusion reaction. These microscopic agglutinations do not occur because if they do, now you got another whole set of problems to deal with. There's a, another point here that's really um, that, that's disturbing on many levels, and I'll throw this little tidbit out. Back in 1984, 
I was a physician, a volunteer physician for the boxing team in the 84 Olympics up in L.A. It was a great experience. It was one of the best three weeks of my life to deal with all this stuff. And I love the Olympics. I, I never miss them. I wait for them both the summer and the winter. You know, I wish we had them almost every year, but maybe they'd take some of the luster off of them because they're fantastic uh, uh, events where the world gets together and actually has competition. And, and, and I just love the Olympics. But in 1984, our cycling team, uh, allegedly, and, and I don't think it's alleged anymore, I think everybody knows, our cycling team really did well. They won a lot of gold medals. In fact, a lot of the racetracks down, were down here in Orange County, just right here next to where I'm sitting, you know, uh, around Mission Viejo Lake area and all that kind of stuff, which is basically half a dozen miles from where I'm sitting right now. And so we really did well. But while they were training in uh, Denver area, one of the ways that you can increase your athletic performance is to increase the red blood cells in your bloodstream up to a point. The normal hemoglobin level in, in the average person is like 14 or 15 is the number. And when you get up to like 17, you can you can improve your performance by 10 or 15% because you have more red blood cells in every ounce of blood that's pumped, and therefore you have more oxygen delivery to the muscles. This is a form of blood doping. You know, there's drugs called erythropoietin that they use for this. Uh, certain marathoners in the past uh, have been accused of of, of, of blood doping, what they would do is take their own blood for like three months in a row, take out a unit of blood and store it, uh, spin it down where it's just red cells, get rid of all the serum. And then over that month, they would build their, their, blood, their blood back up. And then right a week before competition, then they retransfuse their own red blood cells in there. Well, that kind of takes out transfusion reactions. And so now your hemoglobin goes from 15 to 17 and your performance goes up 10%. This happens. And um, it's hard to detect for obvious reasons. But it's also one of the reasons that athletes train at altitude. Because if you train in Mexico City or Denver or some or Tahoe, some, somewhere that is high altitude where there's less oxygen, you adapt. People who move to those areas from the lowlands, if you will, their hemoglobin levels go up because they adapt to their environment and they adapt to be able to transport more oxygen around their system and, and, and supply their muscle and heart and everything else. Well, not only did our cycling team do that, they apparently also blood doped by, by transfusing blood red blood cells. Now red blood cells are where you take a unit of blood and you spin it down and take all the serum off and what you're left with is what we call packed red cells. So it's just the part of there's very most of the serum is removed so it's just red blood cells and it really pumps up the hemoglobin level if it's measured in the blood. Okay but what they did is they apparently met in a motel and they spun down to red blood cells and gave the athletes type-specific red blood cells. So, Joe, you're A positive, you get A positive. You know, the, Sam, you're B negative, you get B negative. Well, this is the kind of stuff you do in gunshot wounds and ruptured aortas in the emergency room. This is not the kind of stuff you do to win a bicycle race. They are extremely lucky 
that someone didn't die or get harmed from this. I mean, just extremely lucky. But they basically did what this physician would be stuck with doing, is just finding blood that is supposedly compatible and giving it. Wow. It just still, I still shake my head, and it's been, what, 40 years? And I still shake my head about that. So, anyway, this was a cool question, and I hope the answer helped you. I hope it gave you some ideas uh, for your stories, I, I, especially you people who, out there who write historical fiction, which, is, which, which I love. Um, so, that's it. That's how you do a 15th century blood transfusion if you ever find yourself transported back there and don't know what to do. <laughs> so this has been D.P. Lyle, and until next time, I'll sign off from Criminal Mischief right now.